BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper. And it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers. Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can fly. All it takes is faith and trust. Well, if it isn't the Star Spangled Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Welcome to Neverland! <laughs> Take your pixie out of your pockets, Neverlanders. Sprinkle some pixie dust around, think that happiest thought, and let's fly away to Neverland. And I, of course, am here to be your guide. Who am I? Well, I'm your head lost boy, Jeremy, but you can call me the Spider Pan. And if you would like to become an official lost boy or pixie, make sure you visit our website, NeverlandPodcast.com, and click on the Neverlanders link. We're going to have a lot of fun today. We have author W.R. Miller, also known as Bob Miller. He has written books under both names. We're going to have some good conversation with him really for the next couple of episodes because we've talked to him for a very long time and I've got enough stuff to fill in two episodes when I mix in the fact that I would like to talk about some of the news and happenings going around the parks and the movies, anything that we love. Lost Boy Eric will be joining me on this conversation, but he had some things he had to do today so he couldn't join me for the recording of this part of the show but nevertheless i will press on here uh want to tell you something though that was kind of interesting this week and this was i guess thought provoking so i went to a kansas city chiefs nfl football preseason game this week uh my mother-in-law or stepmother uh is really good at winning prizes here locally if she enters into a drawing somehow or another she'll win and she won three tickets so me and my father and my stepmother all went to a Chiefs game here on Thursday night. And we were we were pretty close, actually. We were down, like, second row from the, the dividing wall, whatever you'd want to call that. Uh, the film nerd part of me, I guess, because I've been training at school for so long, 
I looked around for camera placements, and I took photos of the camera placements, and I shared them over with the other students and stuff like that. But uh, we were off into the corner where near an end zone, so when the players were down on the other end of the field, we really couldn't see much of the game except for on the screens. But directly in front of us were the, the Kansas City Chiefs cheerleaders, and they were doing their dances and stuff. And I started to kind of, and I went ahead and took some photos of them because I figured, you know, they're right there. They're part of the fun. But I noticed, like, any time the ball was down and before a snap, the uh, music would come over and they were dancing. I mean, they had something going on every time and had to hold that spile. I mean, they're just balls of energy for three hours straight. They, These ladies, they just keep going and trudging on and having fun and getting the crowd excited and dancing to Metallica. I mean, yes, they were dancing to Metallica and a lot of metal songs. You know, it was pretty cool. But I was like, wow, they're they're kind of underappreciated. I don't know that I have ever taken the time to think about what NFL cheerleaders do. I mean, they have, a, I know, a very lengthy audition process to get into that job. And I've heard, uh, I've, I've gotten to be at a program where uh, Casey Wolf, I can't remember the actual guy's name, uh, but he was giving a program and he talked about how little the NFL cheerleaders really do get paid and they make more money by doing those appearances at, uh, at grocery stores or whatever they happen to do. They, they get paid for those and that's where they make a lot of their money, but really they only get paid really for game time and it isn't a whole lot. Uh, but these girls, they really are busting their little tails off. And so I think I've gained a new appreciation for them because I guess I had in my head more like like in high school because we worked with the cheerleaders a lot and the pom-pom squad because I played in marching band. And, you know, of course, the cheerleaders would out there. They'd have their little cheers they'd do every once in a while. They would say, okay, well, let's do this one. And they would do a cheer. Yay, get on and fight. You know, it's a whole different aspect. But... Uh, this was full tilt at the NFL. I mean, they have, were constantly going and had to hold that smile. And they're interacting with kids in the crowd. And we even apparently had an incident before the game had started that uh, we hadn't, we didn't see, but we found out later from people who were sitting around that there was somebody who sat in the front row and uh, I guess said some obscene things or something really bad to the cheerleaders. And one of the camera people had said, hey, hey, that's not appropriate. And the person in the audience yelled obscenities at the cameraman, to which security then threw the guy out before the game even started. Uh, but I wonder how much stuff sometimes these cheerleaders have to endure by people being rude to them. So, you know what? They're, these girls are working hard, so let's be polite to them. And I, I think I got a different new respect for them, seeing how hard they're really working out there and dancing and, and working the crowd and smiling. And uh, if you happen to be an NFL cheerleader and you're listening to the show, then my hat's off to you. You keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I'm proud to have gotten to see what all you were doing. You know, while we're, we're focused so much on the game, we forget that... You're an entertainment spectacle yourselves, and you guys are really working hard. Uh, so that's something I learned about this week. Did you learn anything weird this week or do anything fascinating where you got a different perspective of how you look at something? Then let us know. Send me an email, podcast at neverlandpodcast.com. But now I think it's time I talked about a little bit of news. Spanning the Disney and Geek Universe to bring you the best in comics, toys, movies, and entertainment. This is news from around Neverland. 
Now you may have gotten used to by now, I go through and I have a question I would have posed on Facebook and Twitter, and I would talk about the responses that we got from you. But instead of asking a question this week, I had shared some news stories, and I got some responses to that, and I thought I would share that, because I, I like when you're all in interacting. So the first thing that, uh, that I brought up that had some response was that the Disney streaming service has a possible name. Bob Iger mentioned it could be called Disney Play. Now, this is not permanent. It seemed like it was a little bit up in the air. They might change it. So, you know, I think it'd be really a mistake probably to have it that close to the Play Disney app, which I spoke about uh I guess a couple of shows ago where we have the app, of course, that you can sit in queue for one of the rides and you can play on it. I did download it like I said I would, but one thing I guess I, I had missed when I had read it, that you have to have the Apple Music app that you have to pay for connected with it in order to, in order to play a streaming list of Disney music or a playlist with the app, so I really don't have a use for it until I get back to the parks, which I guess means I need to just get myself back to Walt Disney World then, don't I? So, we did have some replies though to this. Uh, Deanna says, kind of dreading the release of this, then all this stuff will come to Netflix, pretty cruel of Disney. Many families can't afford another streaming, or come off of Netflix, but they can't afford another streaming service, she was saying. And yeah, that's something we talked about before, that with the new Disney streaming service, they're going to take all of their movies, although they're they're having trouble right now with Ted Turner on trying to get the licensing back for the televised versions of the Star Wars films. They have until 2024, I think we looked at. Well, that's true. They're going to be taking all of this back, and Disney's going to grab all their content and put it on their streaming service. Uh, my thought is, yeah, because it would be really expensive to do multiple streaming services if you're trying to pay for all these different things. What I'm going to do is I'm probably going to shut down my Netflix account and just get the Disney account instead. Uh, that's just me, though. But, I mean, I can understand. There's a lot of shows on Netflix. Personally, I think the only Netflix originals I'm really committed to continuing to watch might be Stranger Things uh, and probably The Toys That Made Us. I do enjoy that, although I'm really behind on it. Uh, and it is handy to watch you know, some of the shows that I don't get a chance to watch off my DVR that uh, I can clear off the DVR and watch them off Netflix. Uh, but, you know, personally, when this new streaming service comes out, I think we may shut off our Netflix account to have this. Uh, but a lot of my Disney films come also from my Voodoo account where I have the digital copies of all the movies I've purchased. Uh, so I can watch all those. But I'm looking forward to the chance to maybe watch some classic Mickey without the sound redubbed for the you know, Have a Laugh series. Uh, and some classic Disney films. So, to me, I think it would be worth just shutting down on Netflix. But, yeah, it's, I guess it, you could look at it as kind of cruel to maybe take their stuff away from Netflix, but it makes perfect sense. Why would you let somebody else make money off of your product? We also heard from, from Amy, who says, I wish the name was different. Here, here. I totally understand that. That's why I'm a little confused with why they would make the name so similar to the Play Disney app. That seems really weird but to, okay here's something else exciting Matt Smith former doctor from the Doctor Who series will have a key role in Star Wars Episode 9 no idea what that key role is but he will be there now somebody I think made a joke that uh, he kind of looks a little like Snoke <laughs> so maybe you get a flashback to a younger Snoke but <laughs> I don't know the voice doesn't sound the same at all because he's not going to sound like Andy Serkis. But that would be uh, pretty funny. But So we don't know who he's playing. 
but I it should be very interesting. And you know, we we don't know what's happening between him and Dominic Monaghan and uh, oh, the girl from Felicity. I mean, there's we're hearing all kinds of different casting on this, and I think that with a big all-star cast, they're going to get a lot of people excited about it. That maybe we're falling off. Which, by the way, we did find out that Ryan Johnson's trilogy is still going on. There was rumors bouncing around. I think a lot of hopeful people who really didn't like The Last Jedi, they're really hoping that Ryan Johnson would not be making his separate Star Wars trilogy. Uh, There hasn't been any change. Ryan Johnson has confirmed that, yeah, he's still working on those. And... You know, there I did hear back from from some of our listeners here. Let's see, where did I find that? <laughs> I was just looking at it, I had it pulled up, and I accidentally got rid of it. There it is. Okay, so we did hear back from. Uh, we, I was asking about some of the fears that you might have about this movie, fears or hopes. Uh, we did hear from Amy saying she hopes that it doesn't suck, and well, that's that's definitely a <laughs> good assessment. We don't want it to suck. But I also heard from, I believe, let's see here, Waylon, yes, there it is. And he said, let them continue their Ryan Johnson trilogy. They're not going to make a million dollars because The Last Jedi wasn't a major success now. Uh, I guess comparatively, The Last Jedi wasn't the success maybe that they were hoping for it to be. And there will be some people who decide they hate Ryan Johnson and they're not going to go. These may be the same people that stuck their nose in the air and didn't go see Solo, despite it being a fantastic movie. Well, not as good as Rogue One, in my opinion, but still, Solo was good. So, yeah, there might be some people who are just going to backlash and not go. Uh, well, then they can just miss out if it turns out to be really good. That's their choice. Uh, personally, I did enjoy The Last Jedi. Eric enjoyed The Last Jedi. Uh, I think we're doing better than we did at the prequels with these, and uh, I'm just along for the ride and just remembering to go in and just have fun with it because it's Star Wars, and I'm having fun. That's what we're supposed to do, right? But speaking of Star Wars... There was an announcement of Oga's Cantina that's coming into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge in 2019. So you have to have a cantina at the Black Spire Outpost, right? So this is coming directly from the Disney Parks blog. Let me just kind of read some of this. Oga's Cantina is kind of an establishment that attracts some of the most interesting and disreputable characters in the galaxy. And you never know when a stormtrooper or familiar face will show up. Patrons of the cantina come from across the galaxy to sample the famous concoctions created with exotic ingredients using otherworldly methods served in unique vessels. With choices for kids and libations for adults, the cantina will make for a great stop. And, by the way, Rex, RX-24, the former Starspeeder pilot droid, is going to be the DJ doing some musical entertainment. No word yet if Paul Rubens is actually coming to voice him. I hope he is. That would be awesome, because I've missed Rex. I'd love to have Rex back in some fashion. And so if it's, if it's the same Rex that was on the Starspeeder, we got to have Paul Rubens come back to voice him. Uh, but this sounds like a place that they can sell some alcohol inside one of the parks, which... Uh, I think they have been previously in the in the Hollywood studios. Haven't they had places that sold some alcohol? I know Epcot, you could get some alcohol. Uh, it's it's hit or miss in some places. I know Walt really didn't want a bunch of drunk people in his parks. So uh, bringing alcohol into the parks has been kind of a slow process for those that really want it. But here's something else going on in the parks. ABC's American Idol, the bus tour is actually going through Walt Disney World and has done some auditions there. Uh, But they are on the move. You have an opportunity to audition for American Idol. And there are some locations on the Disney Parks blog for where this is heading. Uh, 
probably, let's see, by the time this comes out, let me see who's going to have a chance to have heard this and know. But uh, Richmond, Virginia, Plano, Texas, Houston, Texas, Austin, Texas, Philadelphia, Oklahoma City, Buffalo, New York, Kansas City, Missouri, September 9th, my hometown. I'm not planning to audition. I'm too old and I don't want to. Shreveport, Louisiana, Columbus, Ohio, Little Rock, Arkansas, Denver, Colorado, Charleston, West Virginia, and Atlanta, Georgia. All of this happening in September. But you must be... 15 year old to uh, 15 years old I should say to audition and you need to pre-register at least that is encouraged okay but they of course they're looking for younger people so if you're 41 like me they don't want you and I'm not really that interested in auditioning anyway
four of these on the right coordinates. is your Neverland story time. You can listen along with your MP3 device. You will know it is time to listen when you hear the chime like this. Let's begin now. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars, A New Hope. You can also read along with the story in your book. Unless you are already programmed to know when the pages end, you will know it is time to turn the page when you hear this sound. I believe the storyteller is ready, so let us begin. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. There was a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships fighting for freedom 
had won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret design plans for the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's agents, Princess Leia of Alderaan raced home aboard her rebel starship, carrying the plans that could save her people. Suddenly, a laser blast rocked Princess Leia's starship. Inside, two droids, C-3PO and R2-D2, tried to steady themselves. The larger of the two, C-3PO turned to his small counterpart, R2-D2. We'll be destroyed for sure. This is madness. The starship began to shake, straining against an invisible force. It was caught in the tractor beam of an Imperial Star Destroyer and was being pulled into a docking bay. In a burst of flame, the hatch to the Rebel starship was opened and Imperial stormtroopers poured in, firing in every direction. The Rebel soldiers were quickly overtaken. A massive, black-cloaked figure stepped through the charred doorway. It was the Dark Lord of the Sith, the feared Darth Vader. In another part of the ship, C-3PO was looking for R2-D2, whom he'd lost during the attack. Following the familiar sound of his friend, C-3PO came across a beautiful woman kneeling in front of the little droid. She turned and quickly slipped into the shadows. There you are. Where have you been? Mission? What mission? C-3PO followed the little droid as he entered an escape pod. I'm going to regret this. The pod burst from the ship and headed for Tatooine, the planet below. Within moments, Princess Leia was captured and brought before the Dark Lord. Darth Vader, only you could be so bold. Don't act so surprised, Your Highness. You weren't on any mercy mission this time. Several transmissions were beamed to this ship by rebel spies. I want to know what happened to the plans they sent you. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. You are a part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away. On the desert planet of Tatooine, C-3PO and R2-D2's escape pod had landed. No sooner had they disembarked than they were captured by the Jawas, a group of little hooded creatures. I do. Do you think they'll melt us down? Scavengers by nature, the Jawas claimed the droids as their own and sold them to Owen Lars, a moisture farmer and guardian of Luke Skywalker. Uh, Luke, take these two over the garage, will you? I want you to have both of these cleaned up before dinner. As C-3PO was lowered into an oil bath, Luke began to clean the little R2 unit. You got a lot of carbon scoring here. Looks like you boys have seen a lot of action. With all we've been through, sometimes I'm amazed we're in as good condition as we are. What with the rebellion and all? You know of the rebellion against the Empire? That's how we came to be in your service, if you take my meaning, sir. Excited by this link to the rebellion, Luke turned back to R2-D2 and discovered an object in his head rotation joint. Well, my little friend, you've got something jammed in here real good. Were you in a star cruiser or a... 
there was a flash of light, and suddenly, R2-D2 began projecting a holographic image of Princess Leia into the center of the room. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Luke sat there, dazzled. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Who is she? She's beautiful. The stubborn R2 unit refused to play back the entire message. C-3PO interpreted the little droid's mechanical beeps for Luke. He says that he is the property of Obi-Wan Kenobi, a resident of these parts, and it's a private message for him. I wonder if he means old Ben Kenobi. I beg your pardon, sir, but do you know what he's talking about? Well, I don't know anyone named Obi-Wan, but old Ben lives out beyond the Dune Sea. He's kind of a strange old hermit. Fearing that the droids may have been stolen, Luke set off to deliver them to Ben Kenobi, along with a secret message. Luke presented Ben with the droids. I saw part of a message R2-D2 was to... I seem to have found it. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Ben turned to Luke. I was once a Jedi Knight, like your father. My father was a Jedi? Yes. And this was his lightsaber. Ben handed Luke the sword. He wanted you to have it when you were old enough. You should learn the ways of the Force, if you're to come with me to Alderaan. I can't leave here. I'll take you as far as Anchorhead. Oh, you must do what you feel is right, of course. On their way to Anchorhead, Luke, Ben, and the droids came across the Jawa sand crawler, destroyed by Imperial troops. If they trace the robots here... They may have learned who they sold them to, and that would lead them back home. Wait, Luke! It's too dangerous! But Luke was already in his land speeder and gone. When he arrived at the farm, he was devastated to find all that he had ever known destroyed and smoldering. Sadly, he returned to Ben. I want to come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing here for me now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Though their destination was clear, they still needed a ship and a pilot to take them there. The best place to find a pilot was the Mos Eisley Cantina, home to a strange assortment of creatures from throughout the galaxy. Ben took Luke around and made some introductions. Chewbacca here. He's first mate on a ship that might suit us. The tall Wookiee led them to a table off in the corner, where they met a rough-looking star pilot. I'm Solo. I'm the captain of the Millennium Falcon. You guys got yourself a ship. We'll leave as soon as you're ready, docking Bay 94. While Luke and Ben set off to sell the land speeder for some extra money, Han returned to his ship, only to be met by the hideous gangster Jabba the Hutt. Oh, the vicious hut demanded the money that Han owed him. The captain tried to gain some time. I got a nice easy charter now. Pay you back plus a little extra. Jabba agreed, but he made it clear that if Han failed again, 
who would put such a high price on his head that he wouldn't be able to go anywhere without an army of bounty hunters waiting to collect it. This is the end of side one. Please turn the page and turn the tape over. The Millennium Falcon took off, racing toward Alderaan. Meanwhile, at Alderaan, the Death Star had just entered orbit. On board, Darth Vader was taking the Princess to the commander of the space station. Princess Leia, before your execution, I would like you to be my first guest at a ceremony that will make this battle station fully operational. No star system will dare oppose the Emperor now. He turned to the technician. You may fire when ready. A beam of light shot out of the Death Star, and the planet Alderaan exploded in a tremendous fireball. At the same moment, the Millennium Falcon came out of hyperspace and was suddenly pelted with debris from the destroyed planet. The only thing seemingly intact was a small moon nearby. That's no moon. That's a space station. Ben's right. Suddenly the ship shook violently. Han grabbed the controls. We're caught in a tractor beam. They're pulling us in. When the Falcon docked, the Imperial search crew jumped on board. But they found the ship empty. Shaking their heads in disbelief, they left. Han, along with the others, emerged from secret compartments and climbed aboard the Death Star. While Ben set off to deactivate the tractor beam, R2 plugged into a Death Star computer and discovered that Princess Leia was aboard. Luke persuaded Han and Chewbacca to help him rescue her. They knocked out some guards, took their uniforms, and disguised themselves as stormtroopers, escorting their prisoner, Chewbacca. Once inside the detention block, they located Leia's cell. She was startled as her door opened and an unusual stormtrooper entered. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. I've got your R2 unit. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. Suddenly, lasers were exploding around them. The Imperial troops had our heroes completely covered. They forced them down a hallway with no means of escape. Well, this is some rescue. When you came in here, didn't you have a plan for getting out? The princess grabbed Luke's blaster and ripped open a hole in the wall. Into the garbage chute, flyboy. One by one, they all dove into the hole, landing safely in a huge garbage bin. Without warning, the walls began to close in on them. They landed in a trash compactor. It took all their strength to keep the four sides from crushing them. And for a while, it didn't look good. Then Luke suddenly remembered the droids. He contacted them on his comlink and instructed R2 to shut down all the garbage mashers. Everyone escaped with barely a scratch. Meanwhile, Ben had deactivated the tractor beam. Stealthily, the old Jedi made his way back through the hallways to the Falcon. And suddenly, he felt the presence of the Dark Lord. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now, I am the master. On went his lightsaber. Ben quickly ignited his sword, too. Only a master of evil, Darth. You can't win. If you strike me down, 
I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Luke and his friends arrived at the docking bay where the Falcon was in sight. But there was a strange commotion going on at one end, and a group of stormtroopers were watching it closely. It was the battle between the Dark Lord and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Vader would swing and Ben would block. But when the old Jedi saw Luke, a serene look came over him. He stopped fighting, closed his eyes, and raised his sword to his face. Vader swept his lightsaber through Obi-Wan's cloak. But suddenly he was gone. Only his robes, in a crumpled heap, remained. Luke was horrified. No! The stormtroopers spun around and opened fire. Leia and the droids raced to the ship as Han, Chewbacca, and Luke fired back. Within seconds, the Millennium Falcon shot out of the docking bay. But it was not alone. Four Imperial TIE fighters were hot on its trail. Han showed Luke the gun ports. Come on, buddy, we're not out of this yet. The attack was severe. But our young heroes won. Afterward, they arrived at Rebel headquarters with the Death Star plans. But Darth Vader had placed a homing beacon aboard the Millennium Falcon, and the Imperial Death Star was approaching. Using the secret plan, the Rebels launched their ships and headed straight for the Death Star. They zoomed across the surface of the space station as enemy laser cannons fired back. It soon became obvious that the Imperial troops had to fight the Rebels ship to ship. Waves of TIE fighters screamed out of the Death Star and attacked. Even Darth Vader himself manned a fighter. The Empire was gaining ground. One rebel pilot had failed to hit the weak spot of the space station. Now, it was up to Luke. But Vader was right on Luke's heels. The force is strong with this one. As Vader was about to fire, a laser shot ripped past him and hit his wingman. The explosion sent Vader's ship spinning into space. You're clear, kid. Let's blow this thing and go home. It was Han. As Luke raced to hit the target, he heard Ben's voice. Use the force, Luke. Luke fired two proton torpedoes at the Death Star. It was a direct hit. The rebel ships raced into hyperspace, just as the space station exploded in a tremendous flash. With the destruction of the Death Star, the Rebels had won one of their great victories over the Empire. Hundreds of Rebel troops gathered together to honor Han Solo and Luke Skywalker for their heroic deeds during the battle. Princess Leia awarded the two men with medals of valor as the crowd cheered their triumph. Through the happiness, however, the Rebels knew that though the dreaded Death Star had been destroyed, the Empire, the Emperor, and Darth Vader were still in power and a threat to freedom. But all that would have to wait until the next adventure.
we have a great time talking to W.R. Miller slash Bob Miller about his book. And Eric and I want to give you a copy of his book. Share this episode by tweeting or retweeting or posting it to Facebook. Mark it hashtag Neverland Giveaway and tag it back to us at Neverland PCAST on Twitter or tag it back to us on Facebook with the usual method methods. Well, take a screenshot of it at least and write us a review on iTunes and, of course, take a screenshot of that. Make sure you take the screenshot before you hit submit because it'll take a little while for iTunes to show it. You'll receive one entry for each of these screenshots that you send me for a maximum of two entries. Email those screenshots to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com with the subject line Neverland Giveaway. We will announce the winner after we've played part two of this conversation. So get retweeting, get reviewing, and good luck. To Disney and beyond. Okay, we have a great new book that we really want to tell you about. And this, I tell you, this is for Star Wars fans. This will be for science fiction fans. Even if you're just a fan of the craft of filmmaking, this first volume, I think, is going to, well, speak volumes to you. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to look at it. Eric won a copy from Skywalking Through Neverland. Uh, but we're going to talk all about it. We actually have the author with us, Mr. W.R. Miller. And not to be confused, when I actually Googled your name, there's a psychologist who's written a bunch of books called W.R. Miller as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely not the same guy. Nope. <laughs> now, now, I just want to confirm, is this the W.R. Miller who worked for Sullivan Bluth? Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, that was one of the very first jobs I had in my uh, career in uh, the animation industry. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. You know, uh, Don Bluth is always such a uh, important part of uh, my growing up. I kind of feel like I need to be educated because I, I know Don Bluth, <laughs> but okay, this other stuff. Oh, I'm about to veer into left field, so what was this? Well, I've been involved in the animation industry since uh, 1988. Wow. Yeah. I um, came on board as a layout artist on uh, Beanie and Cecil, which was revived by John Chris Valusi over at Deep oh, yeah. Animation. And then I uh, went over to Europe to write on a series. I developed the story bible for a series called Waterloo Channel Q for Gerhard Hahn Film Productions. And then on the way back, um, you know, I was there for a little bit. And... Um, then, when I got back to the States, I took a test in um, animation over at uh, Sullivan Bluth and Burbank. They had a unit in Ireland and a unit in Burbank. So I passed the test, and at the time, they were going to be working on a whale movie. And I thought, oh, how nice, uh, how easy it would be to animate the whales. All they have to do is undulate up and down, how hard it is to do that. <laughs> But uh, what happened was uh, they were on the tail end of Rockadoodle. So uh, wow. I, I began working on that um, one of my, as an in-betweener. You know, I was fresh, I was new, but they were willing to give me a chance. So that's uh, when I started to learn classical animation. And uh, they were very kind to, you know, try me out, bring me on, and I was glad to help them out. And one of the scenes that uh, I helped was um, there was a scene called Kiss and Coo. And Chanticleer mm -hmm. the rooster, who was sort of like uh, Elvis Presley, uh, was swinging with um, his sweetheart. And she was pouring him a drink. Well, um, it was decided at the time that we cannot have alcohol in this movie. Oh. So, we changed, <laughs> so we changed the alcohol into milk. 
so I had to help uh, revise those drawings. So that was wow. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's where I first got my start in animation, and then um, when the studio closed down in uh, 1992, I went over to um, work on Garfield and Friends over <gasps> at uh, Film Roman. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, it was a fun show. Um, <sighs> Mark Evaneers was the writer slash producer slash voice director and he's a brilliant man he's a very kind man and uh it was one of his recommendations that i come on board that show and that's when i started uh doing model design and uh early storyboard work and then my career took off after that i mean i've worked on a lot of studios after that, but uh, you want to talk about Star Wars, right? <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're flexible. We can talk about anything, because I'm pretty fascinated by that, too. I loved Garfield and Friends. Yeah, it was, it was great. It's a wonderful show. Yeah, because yeah. anything they've done since that with the computer animated, it's somehow it's just missing part of the charm that Garfield and Friends had. But I can go back and watch that on Hulu, and I still love it as much as I do, but I was a kid. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, Mark's, Mark's a very talented writer. He wrote most of the episodes on that. Oh, yeah, he has such a great style of and such a great sense of humor. That I, yeah, Garfield's still like one of He's still my number two because I love Peanuts most of all. You got to love Charlie Brown. But Garfield has always been my second favorite comic strip. Wow, that's wow. great. Well, let me put in a plug for my next book. It's called The Animated Voice. And I talk about um, a couple of voice acting se- voice uh, s- sessions. Where, uh, first of all, I went to a Gummy Bears recording session. And after that, because I worked on Garfield, Mark invited me to do voices on uh, Garfield. Not major characters, not any characters, really, but they did what's called a Walla. Do you know what a Walla is? Oh, actually, I don't. (laughs) A Walla is basically the nattering or the chatter that you have with background characters. Oh, okay. So in that voice recording session, I was just there to observe, really. Um, But then, um, you know, he was kind enough to let me and a fellow storyboard artist, Norm Quebedo, to go in and do um, background voices. You know, just chatter or wallas or laughing. In this case, it was laughing. And uh, somebody from Paws, which is Jim Davis's company, you know who Jim Davis is? Of course. <laughs> Creator of Garfield, for those who don't right. know. Um, he had a representative there who came down, and um, I decided to ham it up and do this high-pitched cackle, which is kind of, would be drowned out anyway by all the other people in the recording area. But she thought it was kind of, you know, um unique let's say and so well that's how i get into the role and uh, everybody (laughs) loved it so it was just a magical moment and also the thing is mark is also evanier is also the voice director Mm -hmm. of wow so he got to bring in some of the stars that were his heroes uh people like june foray and Mm -hmm. don messick and frank welker um all of them talent oh stan freeberg i can go oh yeah oh Wow. You know, wonderful people. And so the very day that I was, that we were visiting the recording studio, he brought in Don Messick. Don Messick brought, uh, was voicing this cute little bird. And Messick would do his role, and Mark and I would look at each other. We're both big Hanna-Barbera fans. He says, yep, that's the ranger <laughs> from, from, from Yogi Bear. <laughs> oh, Yes. 
That's Rank oh. Smith, you know. So it was just a really magical moment. And, of course, uh, Lorenzo Music was there, and you know who oh, that yeah. is. Of course we do. Yeah, the voice of Garfield. Yeah. And what made it really magical was we did this, the recording session in the morning, and then, that, and then we went back to work at the studio over in um, North Hollywood at the time. And wait a minute. No, it was in, um, yeah, North Hollywood. Uh, Film Roman has since um, moved on. But um, what made it magical was Lorenzo Music at the, uh, came over to see us. You know, wow. we'd go work on storyboards or model designs or whatever, and Mark Evanier and Lorenzo Music just came over and said how much they enjoyed us being there, and uh, it just made it magical, and that's one of the nice things about being in show business. You get to meet, oh, yeah. you get to meet your the people that you admire. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and a whole room full of them, really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the so I've, got, I've got more details in that book if – uh, once it should come be out in a month or two. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, they say everybody's got one it. good book in them. You seem to have lots of good books in you. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, the I've, I signed with Pulp Hero Press, which is an th- imprint of um, Theme Park Press, which specializes in Disney-type books. Pulp Hero mm-hmm. Press um, you know, goes beyond that into covering uh, pop culture. So I signed a multi-book contract with the publisher. And so, um, yeah, I've got um, a lot of nonfiction coming out. The, the first is the Star Wars series, uh, the Star Wars Historical Source book. And another one is on um, the I call the Animated Voice. I'm going to have at least three volumes on that. And then I'm going to do one on Batman. Oh. And the, the original animated series. You know, oh, so like the Filmation series or no, like the no, Hanna-Barbera? No, no I, I sh- should qualify that. No, none of those two. Um, no, the one that um, Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski reproduced. Oh, 90s, that one. The 90s one. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I interviewed um, the voice director, Andrea Romano, yesterday. Oh. Just a wonderful, gracious lady, and she's recently retired. She's been in the business for... A long time, and so she has a a lot of. Oh yeah, and she's a, she's very legendary, and she's very knowledgeable, and so it was a real treat to um, get some of her insights. I might as well just get a new bookshelf and just clear it out and say every time you put something out. (laughs) That's very kind of you. (laughs) It's great though that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeremy. Or go ahead then. I. Well, I'm. I have to say, you know, we'll definitely have to clear out a whole new shelf here because uh, the Star Wars Historical Sourcebook, this is just volume one, right? Right. And there's so much material. What the project is, it encompasses um, the years 1971 through 1990 total because beyond that, um, you just go crazy trying to catalog everything. But for those who are (laughs) unfamiliar with the project, uh, what it is is that I have... You know, while people, Star Wars fans, generally catalog or rather collect uh, the action figures and the toys and the models, um, I collected newspaper articles and books, so um, comic books, anything that was printed or published. So that's, I have a fairly large collection, and things that I didn't have, I would go to um, Skywalker Ranch and uh, they were generous enough to let me research there, or to Rancho Obi-Wan in Petaluma, 
and Steve Sansweet uh, let ah. me go through his collection. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, and beyond that, I've been to uh, England about four times to do research. Uh, Vancouver Public Library, I've uh, been there uh, one time. Um, I've had friends from all over the world, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Denmark. Um, I had a friend in Japan who's helping me out, uh, helping me with all this material. So it's got a global reach. I'm trying to be as comprehensive as possible wow. for this project. And what it is, is like I tell, I present everything in chronological order. So volume one takes place from 71 to 1976, covering all these uh, behind-the-scenes stories um, and interviews with actors, some of them exclusive to my book, um, such as Gary Kurtz. Um, they give me all this behind-the-scenes information that uh, is fresh, is new, and, and um, it's um, very revealing. You know, I found that it's... You know, as fascinating as the Star Wars movies are, the behind-the-scenes anecdotes are even more fascinating because it's real life. Yeah. And I've always been fascinated with uh, with the making of movies, and I feel sometimes in DVDs we don't get as much behind the details of, of the process of creating a film like this anymore, uh, like we used to do. And I love that there's all these great documentaries that show some of the behind-the-scenes. Uh, I've... I've I remember the videotape of from Star Wars to Jedi. Yes. Uh, I mean, just so much great stuff. But now I don't think I've seen a really great comprehensive behind the scenes of a film since like the Lord of the Rings. When you buy the expanded sets, you could get all these in-depth things of even how some of the sounds were created. And now with all these Marvel films, something I'd really like to get in depth of, of some of the sound creation or any of that, it seems they barely tell you anything. So... A book like this that gets into that in-depth of some of the creation, uh, I'm excited about that idea because, you know, I'm part of my education is, of course, focused on audio uh, and I'm, I'm aiming for that radio slash podcasting career. But I have to, of course, study audio for cinema or television, a little bit of Foley. Uh, and, of course, I'm doing some videos, so I'm getting a lot of that behind the scenes education to where I'm learning how to create things now on my own. Uh, so, yeah, I love hearing about this sort of thing and even the drama of uh, like George Lucas uh, nearly having a nervous breakdown trying to get this movie made and all the people who just didn't believe that this was going to be as big as it was and I mean there, there's a very human story behind all of this well yeah I mean if you look at just the individual articles um, you may not gather much of the whole narrative in other words um did you know that uh, Harrison Ford uh, almost turned down the role of Han Solo? Because <laughs> he wanted to be a carpenter. <laughs> well, yes, uh, being paid—he's being paid more as a carpenter than mm -hmm. what they're going to pay him for the role. But guess who talked him into it? I have no idea. His wife, Mary. <laughs> so that's a smart wife. Yeah, well, pretty much, but it started a, a chain of uh, dominoes happening uh, that affected uh, their family relationship. Yeah, unfortunately. And so <laughs> to, to find that out, you have to, you know, that's what my book's about, is it links all these individual events together so you get one continuous narrative. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In other words, everything is cross-referenced. 
So basically, after Ford had shot Star Wars, he went on to do Apocalypse Now, right? Wow, yeah. His character uh, had a label on his shirt called G. Lucas. (laughs) But guess who was Francis Ford Coppola's assistant was on that film? George Lucas. Uh, Nope. Really? Wow. Melissa Melissa Matheson. Oh, really? Yeah, she wrote E.T., didn't she? Yes, and the Black Stallion. And guess who she married? Let's see. Um, well, did I, she probably married Harrison Ford at some point. <laughs> she married Harrison Ford. <laughs> Do you see where all this is going? It's it's you, you tie it all together into one narrative. Yeah. That's the kind of thing this book does. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You could almost learn too much. <laughs> well... There's there's never too much learning. That's that's the yeah. behind the scenes stuff. And um, yes, and so the re- one of the reasons why um, have foreign coverage is when the actors went overseas for interviews. Uh, sometimes they would say things over there that uh, maybe they wouldn't uh, mention in the American press. Hmm. You know. So you get so, all those little insider bits. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah. Or, you know, getting the uh, interviews from Anthony Daniels and David Prowse and Kenny Baker in uh, the United Kingdom, you Mm. get more coverage from them there. And so I include those works in in the um, source book. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, David Prowse would have had a lot of interesting stories uh, from uh, I've I've seen some footage. I think he shared it once on Facebook where he was like doing safety videos as some sort of like superhero. (laughs) Yeah, he played a fellow by the name of the Green Cross Code Man. <laughs> so that's a definite switch to become Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And um, <laughs> it's funny because uh, later on in the um, 80s, he came to the United States and he wore that costume uh, in a guest appearance in Omaha. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think the kids in Omaha knew who the Green Cross Code Man was, but they knew who <laughs> Dave Prowse was. Even though he wore the Green Cross Code uniform, <laughs> uh, you know the funny thing is, I I used to keep a drawer of just random things, you know, like newspapers. I even had some TV guides I kept for a long time because it it would have like a mention of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and stuff like that. And I I never thought it would really be that valuable. And I I'm thinking, you know, if I had just hung on to some of these things, who knows well, what information I would have had? It's all valuable. And yeah. I, would, I would say any article that you've saved, it's probably more valuable than uh, postage stamps. Because <laughs> there, there aren't that many people, at least that I know of, that collect uh, newspaper articles on um, whatever topic they collect on. Whereas you have thousands and thousands of postage stamps, you know, collected by people. But you don't have many collectors for, you know, newspaper articles or clippings. And those, for that reason, become very valuable. Yeah, you're basically saving information, knowledge. Well, yeah, because it's, you know, other than eBay, you can't get it anywhere else. Right. I mean, I one of the values of me going to Lucasfilm, or rather Skywalker Ranch, was uh, they have boxes in their archive full of uh, press clippings from all over oh. the world. And in some of, the ca- some of those cases... They are the only copies I've been able to find anywhere in my research. 
In fact, in some cases, they're just not available in any public library other than in the hands of private collectors like Steve Sansweet or myself wow. or, you know, Skywalker Ranch. You know, my goodness. So I've documented these articles. My book is practically the only way anybody can find out that these articles actually exist. What I've done is for each citation, you know, um, I include the anecdote. I include the the date, the name of the uh, the publication, the page number, uh, what the photos were. I describe some of the photos, whether or not they're black and white in color. Um, and then I have a paragraph or two where I quote from one of the actors or or anybody involved in the article, and then I cross reference it to other um, you know citations later on. And um, so anyway, that's where I put my behind-the-scenes anecdotes. Yeah, and if anybody's starting to ask the question of, well, why wouldn't he just put copies of the articles? Because those articles are copyright. Those photos will be copyright. But you can mention them and point someone to them. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Now, through any of your research, did you come across any, I don't know, holy grails that, you know, just kind of opened up a a whole new world uh, with what you had found? Well, pretty much anywhere I looked, um, sometimes it has surprised even the librarians themselves. Every place I would go remotely uh, was itself an adventure. Uh, for instance, um, I traveled up to the Vancouver Public Library, and it's an ultra-modern, multi-level library with a, you know, place to eat downstairs, and it's got escalators, and it even has its own research service. And at the time I went, um, I was looking for what they call multiple clipping files. You know what those are? Uh, I'm, I'm, my brain's thinking like microfish, but I don't think that's right. Well, they're, they're, they have files on uh, clippings, and they thought, well, how, w- you know, how would we have anything about Star Wars you know, filed away? And, of course, they did. They didn't believe me, but they actually did. And one of the major repositories um, was on the topic of the Ewoks lawsuit that happened in uh, 1990 it was in calgary and the canadian press uh, reported it thoroughly not so much here in the states see that's why it's valuable for me to go overseas or you know to another country that way it's easier for me to access local coverage oh yeah yeah you know what i mean so i was able to get details on that trial um, you know, George Lucas had to go, Joe Johnston had to go, um, you know, and of course Lucas won the lawsuit, but uh, it was the Canadian coverage that gave it the detail that uh, what, that the Americans did not, you know. So that was interesting, but part of the adventure that I had was um, somebody, you know, I had photocopied in color some of the articles that I was finding from Canadian magazines and papers. And I set them aside at one point, and my back was turned. And when I came back, the uh, articles were gone. Somebody Mm. had stolen them. Wow. So I reported it to um, the people at the library, and wouldn't you know, they were kind enough to actually, you know, I would do it again, recopy, but they absorbed the charges. I didn't have to pay for them. Oh, wow. Oh, that's nice. So, you know, I'd lost a, about a day or day and a half 
doing the copying in the first place, but at least I was able to, you know, retrace my steps and get those articles copied. And when I was running out of time, um, I used the service that they had there. I forgot the name of it, but um, they actually have their own research service. And so they're actually able to um, look up stuff that they have and mail it to you. And to me, in this case, in the United States, and then across. And one more thing, the um, at that time they're getting rid of the bound copies of their local newspapers, the Province and the Vancouver Sun. They're getting rid of them, and they're all in bound copies. And um, of course, they're getting rid of them because of space reasons, but uh, also, you know, they had them on microfilm. Why bother having the physical copies? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was their rationale. And um, yeah. so, but I was able to rescue uh, the hardbounds from the year 1980 during the months that were, uh, that they had articles on the Empire Strikes Back. And so luckily, rather than me toting them home, um, I mean, I didn't drive up there by car. I flew in by plane and I couldn't lift all these heavy volumes with me. <laughs> so what I did was, they have their main post office right across the street from the library. So all I have to do is cross the street and say, well, you know, can you mail all these articles for me? And they did. You know, I paid the postage and they were shipped snail mail back to the United States. My goodness. And then you've got boxes and boxes of articles now. <laughs> well, not boxes yeah. and boxes, but, you know, it was it was a pretty hefty package. <laughs> yeah. Oh my! So that's, uh, this kind of adventure, you know, and you you learn the yeah. local culture, and, and you know, it becomes an adventure. Yeah. So this makes me wonder if uh, if there's potential in in a museum with your collection that you have of being able to you know preserve these, frame them somehow, or something. Maybe work them into Branch of Obi Wan somehow or another, to where people can actually see all of these articles and photos that you have collected. Well. A lot of it, who knows? I mean, I've been digitizing a lot of these works, and frankly, uh, Steve Sansweet has a lot of what I have already. Uh, he has actually has a special room where he, you know, keeps all his comic books. Well, actually, two rooms. He's got one room with comic books and magazines from all over the world. Uh, some of it with newspapers, but also he has a separate library. Um, and probably the largest library of uh, Star Wars books. And I say that because he actually has galleys of some of the Star Wars books that were published um, from the expanded universe. Wow. So uh, he has an amazing collection, and he's a generous man, and he uh, let me go up there uh, several times to research through his collection. My goodness. We're going to have to talk to him one of these days, too, I think, Eric. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. So now I, I did notice that your your journey towards Star Wars uh, started actually that you uh, are a big Star Trek fan and I noticed like your Facebook page you're sitting in Captain Kirk's chair there on the Enterprise. So where was this photo taken? That was at uh, WonderCon. Uh, Rod Roddenberry, who's Gene Roddenberry's son, was there and they did a mock-up of the Enterprise bridge, the original bridge, and people could just sit in the chair and have their photos taken. 
Oh, that would be so cool. It was a lot of fun. And uh, that's, that was just a one-time thing, so I was lucky to uh, be at that convention at that particular time. But, yes, I've, I've been a, I was first a Star Trek fan um, long before Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And um, that actually kind of led into Star Wars in a way. Uh, yeah, I, I was, you know, sort of a collector at that time, but then I noticed Star Wars coming along through um, advance notices in the Comics Buyer's Guide and um, other places, and I thought, well, this is a good place. This is a new franchise. I'll hop on it right here, you know. And so I did. I started collecting um, everything that I could on this uh, new movie that came out at the time. You know, it's, it it stretched the imagination. It was a lot of fun. It, you know, is unlike any other science fiction movie out at the time. It was positive. It was upbeat. You could root for the heroes, hiss the villains. Uh, it was a clear cut black and uh, you know good and evil, black and white kind of thing, and um, it was good for repeat uh, viewings. And I saw it uh, that summer for about twelve times. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have seen it that summer. I was not even a year old yet. <laughs> I was around, and I know that I saw it. So, yeah. well, maybe, maybe before going into labor, mom went because I was born the day after the release. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that means you still have the Star Wars gene in you. Yeah, that's what I figure. <laughs> I, I I like to tell people I literally grew up with it. <laughs> there you go. Never too late to enjoy Star Wars. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! You know, it's just the, unfortunate I first saw them on television and not in the theater. Oh. Yeah, I got to say one of the great things that I really like about Star Wars is uh, you know, and, and George Lucas has mentioned this multiple times. You know, it it really went counter to what was in the culture at that time. It was upbeat. It was positive. You know, uh, you know, you could look at THX as kind of a pessimistic view on what the future would hold. You know, compared to you know just this joy and fantasy. That, uh, that that Star Wars enveloped. Well, absolutely. And I've got it documented in the book as to why uh, he made an upbeat movie. You know, he and Gary Kurtz had looked out there and he'd seen all these other science fiction movies. Um, the closest ones being Planet of the Apes, where it was mm-hmm. fairly much a downbeat ending for pretty much all of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's and Lucas was looking at all these and saying, well, everybody knows how bad things are why don't i make it uh do a a feel-good movie and so he did it with american graffiti and then uh later with uh star wars yeah i i think that's part of why we have such a great resurgence into uh superhero films these days is it they are feel good it's nice to see the hero succeed uh you know and even you know superman i think superman owes a lot I mean, the 78 Superman owes a lot to Star Wars, reminding people that science fiction and fantasy can be fun because that, that first Superman movie, that's one of the ones I grew up with as well. And it's fun and a little bit of goofiness. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. 
And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official lost boy or pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander. Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit Patreon.com slash Neverland Podcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland Podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.